0: again, this may be shorter than I had originally hoped because Caleb took half of my introduction. Um, but we're going to roll with it anyway. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Again, throughout this week, we've been taken on a journey uh, revealing to us the glorious gospel of Jesus. And as Caleb already said, uh, we have looked at the necessity of the gospel, the the reality that we are desperately in need of the gospel, that we have no hope of salvation on our own apart from uh, the work of Jesus. We then looked at how we are to respond to the gospel, that the gospel does demand a response, that we have to say something in light of who God is and what God has done in and through Jesus. And the last night we spent time listening to the power of the gospel, that it is only God who can save, and that He lovingly does so. And each night leading to this point has has really been about what leads to salvation, that it's the work of God leading to salvation. That all are sinners who hope in themselves until they come face to face with the glories of God. And are without hope of salvation on their own power. But that it's God who is rich in Mercy, who has in Christ made a way where there was no way for his people to be redeemed from sin. And he does that, as Paul writes in Colossians, through the blood of the cross. And so it is then in and through Jesus Christ that redemption is both accomplished on the cross and then applied through his spirit. And so that kind of leads us then to now where we have to simply ask, well, how now once we are saved by the wonderful work of Christ, which the gospel so clearly reveals to us, am I then to live? How do I live in light of who God is and what he has done for me in the person and work of Jesus? And so my assignment this morning is on the joy of the gospel. My task is to see how Scripture informs us on how we are to live and, and to ask how does the wonderful work of God in Christ to save us then set me apart to live a life soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. How does the gospel of Jesus fill me, fill us with joy? And if I am honest, I'll admit that I had quite a difficult time landing on a text for this morning. Because there are so many that we could have gone to, there's so many avenues we could have taken, but in praying constantly for this, I felt the Spirit leading me back to John 15. And so I hope you found your way to John 15 by now, and I would invite you, if you are able, to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Me, I'm the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Our father, we thank you again for this awesome and wonderful privilege that you have given us to be able to gather together Various churches, various communities passionate about hearing and learning and proclaiming the true gospel. And so as we work through this text this morning, Father, we ask that you would illuminate it in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. That we would be drawn into the presence of Christ so that we would understand what it is to know and to be known by you. That we would understand what it means to abide that, and as we abide in you, that our joy would be made complete, that our joy would be brought into fullness as we understand who we are in light of who You are and that we understand what we have been set apart to do and that you have given us the spirit of God to live in us, to work in us and through us to bring you glory. And that in bringing you glory, our joy is made full. So would you speak to us this morning? Would you make known to us the glories of who you are? it is in the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Caleb told me, like he told Brother Tom, that I have two hours. Normally, like a good Baptist, I try to have three points, but I have five. So we might be close to that. So we begin first realizing the vine, that true joy can only be found in Jesus. And so as we begin our study of John 15, we begin with these words of Jesus, I am the true vine. This is the final I am statement of Jesus. And what he says is that he is the true Vine. The imagery of the vine is an imagery that was very known and common in Israel. The Old Testament constantly speaks of Israel as being the vine and being connected to the vine, that they are the chosen fruit of God. But by Jesus telling the disciples here in this moment, and for us to be able to read it, that he is, that I am the true vine, Jesus himself is asserting That he alone is the real, genuine source of hope for the people of God. See, the word true there, it's it's easy for us to say as true meaning opposed to falsehood. But what the real meaning is, is that it's real or genuine. And so he is telling them, I am the genuine vine. I am the real vine. I am the only hope that you actually have. And it's a powerful statement in the context of where it lands in Scripture because John 15 is between John 13 and John 17, and we know that these chapters are the discourses of Jesus in his last moments on earth before the crucifixion. And at this point in John 15, they have just had the Passover meal together where he instituted the Lord's Supper. And so what Jesus is doing for his disciples is reassuring them that he alone is the true Messiah, the source of true Israel salvation, which was promised way back in Genesis 3. Now, what's interesting is the Passover meal, you know, would have included lamb. It would have included bread and it would have included the fruit of the vine or wine. And so the promise that we see here is the promise of long ago that there would be a Savior sent by God for his people. And the promise of God was reminded to Israel in the giving of Passover. And that promise was then realized in Jesus as we Heard John the Baptist declaring, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you see Jesus, you can picture this, around the table. They've had the Passover meal together. He's already washed their feet. Judas has already done what Judas was going to do. And he is preparing them for the moment that he would be handed over. And you see this beautiful symbolism of the body and the wine pointing to, I mean, the bread and the wine pointing to the body and the blood of our Jesus that would be shed essentially within a few hours. But Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the one. And so what we really find here is Jesus giving great comfort to his people. As he is sitting around this table and there's some debate on whether they're still sitting around the table when The words of John 15 are uttered or they've already left and they're walking through the midst of the city where there was vines everywhere. There were grape fields everywhere. But nonetheless, he is comforting his dearest friends that he alone is the true vine. That he is the long-awaited, promised Messiah from Genesis 3. But I want you to notice also in the fact that he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Again, that I am statement is so important because the I am statements of Jesus were there to further enforce the reality of his godness, that he was very God of very God. And that. Him being God has now tabernacled with us. He's dwelling with us, that he is God incarnate, God in the flesh, and that he and the Father are one. But you see a difference in their roles, that he is the true vine. Jesus is making that claim, but he says, my Father is the vine dresser, right? The chief gardener, the one who plants and prunes and waters." which kind of gives us a little side note to, to really key on here. And it's important to do this, especially when we're talking about the gospel and the purpose of the gospel for salvation, that each member of the Trinity plays a specific and special role in the process of redeeming his people. That the Father would plan redemption, that the Son would accomplish redemption, and that the Spirit would apply the redemption of God through Christ to his people but our emphasis here this morning regarding true joy and the source of true Christian joy rests as we see here on the person and the work of Christ. The true vine. But the second thing we see in this text beyond just the vine are the branches. And we come to the reality that there are only two types of branches. There are those who are attached to the vine, and there are those who are not. You see, whereas Christ himself is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser, it is us, all of humanity, who who are the branches. This doesn't mean that all are redeemed or all are going to be saved, because we know that's not true. But it does speak to the reality that all people are created imago Dei in the image of God and they have a purpose in the plans of God. 2 Timothy 2.20 says that some are there for honorable use and some for dishonorable. The reality that there are only two types of branches is evident throughout Scripture, especially here. And Verse two of John 15, it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So the first branch, the first people that we see are those that do not bear fruit. This is speaking to those who are not in Christ. They have no union with the vine. One of the beautiful things about South Georgia is we have grapevines everywhere. I know that there's a fancy vineyard right up the road, but most are not vineyards. They're just kind of planted in a yard or growing wild somewhere. And we get to go and enjoy that, especially at this time of the year. At our house, we have grapevines growing down our fence, our neighbor's fence against our driveway. And so every time I'm cutting grass this time of the year, I'll make my way over there. I'll grab a handful and I'll just kind of eat them while I'm cutting grass. But a few years ago, I noticed something interesting about that vine because it was getting larger, longer, and more lush. But as I began to pay attention, I realized that a good portion of that vine was not producing grapes. And the reason is because it's not a grapevine. It's some sort of weed vine that started growing in the midst of it. It looks a lot like the actual grape vine that was there, but it wasn't. It had a completely different Source. You see, those who are not in Christ are not bearing fruit. They are not of him. Now, it's easy to see that this includes those who blatantly reject God. But can I tell you that it also includes those who claim to be Christians? but yet have never truly surrendered themselves to the Lordship of Christ. And where we live in South Georgia, this is a larger problem than those who blatantly reject Christ. Because there are so many who believe that they're part of the true vine, yet they've never tasted and seen that the Lord is truly good. And as we see in verse six, the consequence for these false branches is extremely severe. It says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So those first branches are those who are not in communion with Christ. They've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. But the second type of branch that we find here comes in the latter part of verse two where it says in every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruits. These are those who are in a healthy union with Christ. Verse three says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. These are branches are those who have truly called on the name of Jesus Christ and have surrendered themselves in faith to the Lordship of Christ, then they are included into the family of God. And you see this beautiful picture that they have been cleaned because of the word. Paul writes about this in Ephesians where they have been washed by the water of the word. This reminds us of what he says later in Romans 10, that faith comes through hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And if you remember, it's not just hearing of the word of Christ, but it's understanding that Christ himself is the word. So the whole gospel message is about Jesus coming to save his people from their sin. It is the word made flesh who would dwell among us. so essentially what we find in this passage is that there are only two types of branches or two types of people in this world. Those who are attached to the vine, which are those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and are truly Christian, are truly saved by the power of God. And then there are those who are not truly attached to the vine and they are separated from the grace of Christ. So the question needs to be asked, where are you? You see, it's easy to assume that everybody here at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning during football season are part of those branches who are in Christ. But maybe that's part of the problem we have today is we assume way too much. So I would just caution you to carefully Analyze your heart. Are you truly in him? You see, because those who are not attached to Christ, to the vine. You're not a Christian. And you desperately need to understand that you are completely and utterly hopeless. On your own, without him to be saved. You can't live good enough. You can't give enough. You can't serve enough. You can't attend church enough. You can't check enough boxes for you to stand before him one day and him say, man, you did a great job. Come on in. It doesn't work that way. Isaiah tells us all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we could expound on what that means. But the point is, is the best you have to offer is worth nothing. But what about those who are in Christ? What about the branches who are in Christ? Well, that leads us to the third point. The invitation. The invitation that Christ invites all of his redeemed people to abide in his love. You see, once we realize that there are only two types of branches in this life, in this world, and that we have differentiated between the two, that some are in Christ and some are not, then we move now to the invitation from Christ for those who are in Him to abide in Him. And this invitation that He gives for us to abide in Him is one both of vast beauty and great assurance because it reminds us that it is Christ alone who is our source of life and fruitfulness. Remember that grapevine on my fence that I mentioned a few minutes ago? Well, further down the fence in my yard, there's another vine, another grapevine. And I don't really go to that one as much because what I left off is the one that runs down my fence line or scupper noms. I like those better. They're sweeter. But I have a muscadine vine back on the back corner of my yard. Now, the vine that I can reach doesn't produce anything. But over time, that vine, because I don't know how to prune a grapevine, has grown up into the trees. And this time of the year, I can walk back there to that corner of the yard and I can look up and I can see those lush, dark purple grapes everywhere. Can't get to any of them. But they're there. They're obviously healthy. I kind of wish they weren't because they fall into my dog pen. And if you don't know anything about grapes, it's one of the most toxic things to a dog as you can have. So every day I'm out there kicking grapes out of his pen. But what would happen to those beautiful vines grown all in the pecan trees if I found where they were attached to the main vine on the ground, all those branches, if I now just cut it off? Wouldn't produce any fruit because they'd be dead. They would be separated from their source of life. Look with me at verse four. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, apart from Christ, the true vine, our true source of life and hope and salvation, you and I are completely helpless to live a life that glorifies Him by bearing fruit. But, while we see that truth, we are simultaneously met with the reality of the assurance that we have for those who are truly in Christ, that we will bear fruit. And I want to take just a moment here because... I don't want you to think that I'm saying that you have to bear fruit in order to receive the grace of Christ. I'm saying that if you are in the grace of Christ, you will bear fruit. You see, God the Father is the vine dresser and salvation is His sovereign work. But yet scripture also informs us, and and we understand that this is kind of one of those things that we may never fully get this out of heaven, but, but we are still called to our own responsibility to abide in Him. That we still have to wake up every single day and purpose in our heart that we are going to serve Him, to study His Word, to live a life of gospel joy, That as God's people, we are to be faithfully obedient to continue in godliness. That we are to grow in sanctification. It is that the gospel is saving us. So let me ask you this question, and and this is a question you can raise your hand to. This is not one of those hypotheticals for you to just think about. I want you to really show me something. How many of you here this morning would agree that you desire to live a godly life? Most of us, probably. You know, regardless of what popular culture and worldly wisdom tell you, you cannot do so apart from Jesus. You cannot do so apart from his design and the instruction of his word. You are not free to live your own truths. You are not free to go wash your own face. We come to him completely broken, beat down, tattered. Lost. And in his loving kindness, he redeems. He cleanses. He gives us a new heart, a new life, a new identity. So the invitation is to come for those who are not in Christ, for you to come to Christ and see the love and the kindness of God, which will lead you to repentance. And the call for those who are in Christ, it is to abide in his love, a love that will never let you go. For a long time, we've been really big fans of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you're familiar with that, you know the author of that's kind of gotten to some funky stuff here lately, but who doesn't at some point? <laughs> but one of the most powerful concepts of Scripture, I think it was mentioned one night, is that Hebrew word hesed, which means the steadfast love or the loving kindness of God. Well, I love the way that Jesus' storybook Bible defines that. It says it's the never stopping, never ending, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. That's the love of God in Christ. That for those who are in him, there is nothing you can or ever will do to make him turn his face away from you. He will hold you fast. That's the beauty of the gospel of Christ. That once you have been redeemed by Jesus, you are kept eternally in him. You can't lose salvation because you did nothing to earn it. It is a gift given by the graciousness of God. And so if you've never tasted and seen this goodness of God, if you've never trusted in this perfect work of King Jesus, then I invite you to come to Him and trust in Him so that you can understand what it means to abide in this perfect, glorious love. Christ invites us to abide in Him. But there's more to these verses. We also see that there is a call. That for those who abide in Christ, that we are called to live lives of faithful obedience. Again, John 15 provides us with this remarkable picture of what communion with Christ is to be. I'm a huge fan of the Puritans. And there are often times when I'm reading stories of the Puritans or I'm reading their actual words and their documentations about time where they would have these quiet moments of the day where they just go on walks and they just contemplate the goodness of God. And I'm like, man, why can't we have that? I want that. The only thing, the only closest I can get to that usually is I'll get on my lawnmower and I'll put music or a book in or a podcast and I just kind of check out for that hour. I usually cut grass two to three times a week. I just enjoy that moment. That communion with Christ. And you see the overflow of that in the life of the Puritans because they were probably some of the most devout people that have ever walked the face of the earth. But they didn't only have those quiet walks, they lived lives of supreme devotion to the Lord. And you see, there's not a disconnect between the joy of God and the rest that we find in God and working in faithful obedience for Him. They're actually quite connected. But communion with Christ, this understanding that as undeserving people who have been welcomed by the grace of God and adjoined to Christ, that our true source of life is in him and that he himself has invited us into him to remain in him and in his presence and in his life and in his family forever. That's the gospel, isn't it? Right? That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith that not of your own doing for it is the gift of God so that we can't boast about it. And I don't know about you, but if I could do something to earn or achieve salvation, I would boast about it. But I can't because it's his work. It's this beautiful picture that as Peter writes that we were once not a people, but now we are God's people because of the gracious work of Jesus Christ. That we had no name, but now we've been given a name. That we had no future, but now we have a future. And yes, it's so true that we have been saved by the grace of Jesus through our faith. But we also know that there's a lot more to be seen in Ephesians 2. As it was pointed out the other night, we don't stop at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We have to go to verse 10. Yes, we have been saved by grace through faith. It is the work of God, but we have been saved because of a reason, for a purpose for we are his workmanship created by him for good works, which he has prepared beforehand so that we will walk in them. These are definitive statements. It's not some hypothetical, hey, come trust Jesus. And if you feel like it, come walk with him and follow him and abide in him. No, he's saying now that I have redeemed you, understand that I have redeemed you for a greater purpose. And so now here's the life that you have been set apart to live. So friends, if you're here and you've believed in the Lord Jesus and you have repented of your sins and you have trusted Christ to save you and you have surrendered your life completely and fully into his hands, your story isn't over there. You don't get saved just so that you can live your life on your own terms for the rest of your days. No, you are saved for a reason. You have been bought with a price so that we could glorify God in our bodies to bear fruit. Verse 7, for if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I want to just pause and make two quick notes there. The first is there's a fine line between faithfulness and fundamentalism. There's there's a fine line between understanding that we get to live life for the glory of God and we should versus trying to do so to earn the favor and the merit of God. And if you fall on that side, I would say repent because that's getting you nowhere. You're working really hard for no reward. But if you come to Christ, you get to live all of life for his glory and you will be filled with joy, which we'll get to in a moment. It's kind of that reminder of what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1, that we are to be imitators of him as beloved children, isn't it? Well, if you think about the fact that we are to be imitators of God, that's that's a scary phrase. I can't live up to that standard. But see, the problem is, is so many people look at that text and they say that we are to imitate God so that we would be loved by God. But that's not what it says. It says that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children, past tense, already done. He loves us. So because he loves us, because he has given us everything in Christ, we then get to do the work that he has called us to do. To live the life that he has set apart for us to live. And the Father is glorified when we do that. The second thing I want to note here in verse 9 is that as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. We go through some really difficult seasons in life, don't we? As the people of God, we need to constantly be reminding ourselves that He never lets us go, right? And I don't want to downplay anything that you have gone through, or are going to go through, or maybe you're going through right now in this life. But, but can I say that there's no weight that you will carry that's heavier than the weight that Christ? bore for us on Calvary, and yet it says the Father never left him. About a year ago, I got a copy of a book that I'd had on my shelf for a while, and I have a bad tendency of doing that. I'm getting books that I'm going to read at some point, and I finally I was going through a hard season, so I picked this book up, and it's called Gentle and Lowly. Um, by Dane Ortland, and it's all about drawing us near to the heart of Christ. And he keys in on that passage. You know, if you've never read works of Puritans, Dane Ortland's not a Puritan. He's still alive today, but, but he referenced a lot of Puritan works. But one thing that you notice in the Puritans is they may take just a fraction of one verse and write volumes about it. And that's exactly kind of what Dane Orland does, is he's captivated by the works of a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin and and Thomas Goodwin's work on the passage where Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And he pulls us into the very heart of Christ, that we are loved with that love that we will, honestly, we may never fully comprehend the greatness of the love of Christ. And that book served to be a great encouragement to me, but but it reminded me also during that season that no matter what we go through in this life, that we have a loving, a gracious, and a caring God who never leaves us or forsakes us. And as verse 9 reminds us, Jesus is saying, The father loved me. He's loved me through everything that I have gone through. And he's also reminding them that there's something coming and he's going to love me through that. They don't understand it yet, but it's going to become more clear to them in the next few hours and then the following 40 or 50 days and then even further. And we know that it clicks with them because of the life they lived after the resurrection and the ascension. Especially with Peter. Peter is one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. The one who talked too loud and too fast. Yet in all of his folly and in all of his failures, God used him to do phenomenal work. There is hope for us all. Verse 10. He says, but if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. See, church, we see here in these verses that the father is glorified by our fruit bearing. He's glorified in our obedience. And again, it's so Scary and dangerous sometimes because we, especially in a more let's use the loose term gospel centered circle where we fight against a works based salvation, to almost go to the extreme of not doing anything sometimes because we don't want it to seem like we're you know kind of talking backwards. But those who have truly been redeemed by Christ have been redeemed so that we will do work for him. And again, it's this beautiful reminder that it's not for salvation that we are obedient. It's because of salvation that we are obedient. Our faith is proven by our faithfulness to Christ, his word and his people. I'm sure we've all been in a situation where we either had a family member or maybe we've been to another funeral where we know clearly the person was not a follower of Christ, but we'll key in on a decision or the fact that they attended a church or maybe wrote a check 75 years ago. Well, the reality is, is if we're not currently walking with Christ at the day of our life, then that's usually a pretty clear indicator that we were not in Christ. We were some of that seed that was thrown in soil that didn't take root. We may have had a really good experience and gone through a really good period of time, but that doesn't mean we were actually redeemed. And so I would just, again, ask you this question, friends, to, to think through, like, what is your life about? What is your life reveal? Are you truly abiding in Christ? Are you walking in the love of Christ? Are you resting in the love of Christ, which then leads you to obedience? Again, rest and obedience are not opposed to each other. Obedience without resting in Christ, that's a problem. But see, abiding in Christ and bearing good fruit is what we are called to do. Are you doing that? Are you living your life in such a way that you are giving God glory and you are resting in His grace? Or are you simply attempting to live a life on your own terms and to then justify it by sprinkling in a little Jesus when you get a chance? See, the call of the Gospel is a call to come and die. To die to yourself and to live to Christ. See, we can willingly die to self as Christ has willingly died to Himself because of the love that He has for us that will never leave us. And so we've seen the vine, we've seen the branches, we've seen the invitation, we've seen the call to pursue living for Him. And lastly, I just want us to see what the result of all of that is. That one who is saved by Jesus Christ And surrender to Him will be filled with endless joy. Because at this point, you're probably wondering if I'm going to go two hours and not actually talk about joy that I was given to talk about. And that was not all introduction, but it was all important to pave the way for understanding how we are to have joy. See, again, knowing and understanding the context of chapters 13 through 17 with kind of this chapter 15 in the center of it is what draws us nearer to the heart of Christ. As we understand that it's in his final moments of life that he's with his dearest friends, he's not bemoaning what's about to happen. There's a moment in Gethsemane where he prays, Father, if if there's a way, but he was committed to do what God had called him to do. And in the midst of that, he is lovingly comforting his people and he is calling them to live their lives worthy of the name. And it's in that moment that we hear him say in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be See, church, it is Christ's joy to fully give himself to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, to love them, us, to the very end. Because it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now enthroned at the right hand of God. Do you see, church, that it was all Joy for Christ to endure such hostilities in faithful obedience to the Father. You can only begin to understand what we're even talking about through the lens of Scripture. Otherwise, it makes no sense at all. We'll never be able to define it. We'll never be able to understand it if we attempt to do so by worldly wisdom. I pray that what I'm about to do, you'll forgive me. But in 1646, there was something that was released called the Westminster Catechism. It's Presbyterian, I know. I know we're in a Baptist church, but I feel like you'll forgive me. If not, you should. The Westminster Catechism was put together as a help for the people of God to understand more of Scripture and the teachings of Scripture and how it related to everyday life. The very first question that it asked was this What is the chief end of man? What is Man's ultimate purpose, like what is your ultimate purpose in life? And here's the answer in short. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Many years ago now, John Piper wrote a book called Desiring God, and he suggested a rephrasing of that answer. This is what he suggested. That we should glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And you might say, yeah, that's just semantics. But, but understand what he's trying to say. Because so often we see that glorifying God and enjoying Him as opposed. Like I can't have joy in my life if, I, if I've got to go to church every Sunday. Or I can't have joy in my life if I if I got to skip the dog game on a Saturday to go to a little gospel conference in Mende's Georgia. And so, what Piper is simply trying to do is help people understand that they're not opposed to each other; that they're really one and the same. That God is most glorified in us when we are then most satisfied in Him. Amen. Like when he is our true joy and prize and treasure, we can skip a ball game to go to a conference to hear the word of God preached a lot. And be filled with joy because we know that the work of Christ in us has redeemed us from the curse of sin and that we have been set free to live the life that He has called for us to live, and that we can have complete and full and utter rest in Him, knowing that He is worth it all. You see, we are to bear fruit for the glory of God and the joy found in Him. It's this understanding that as God's people, we are filled with the joy of Christ when we emulate Him. Again, be imitators of me as beloved children. See, when we are at so at peace with Christ and we are so trusting in Christ that we willingly and lovingly live in complete surrender to Him, no matter what the storms that may come bring, that is what understanding and living and abiding in the joy of God is. It's not about happiness. There's a lot of things in life that can make you happy for a season, for a moment. But only Christ can bring you everlasting joy. And so I am pleading with you to come to Christ. That it's only in him that you will find true and lasting joy. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean you're going to be without tears and heartache. But you have hope and you have joy as you abide in the love of Christ, knowing that he will never let you go. You want to know how the disciples and how the martyrs and how all of these faithful believers throughout the centuries have been able to do what they did? Joy. You want to know how the king of glory, as innocent as he was, was able to endure the hostilities that he endured, and yet he uttered not word. Because it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Can you just like take a moment and just think about that for a second? Like most of us will never know that our deathbed awaits. Jesus knew. He knew what was coming. He knew how it was going to come. He knew the pain and the agony, but he even more so knew that he was about to bear the wrath of God for all the sin of all of his people for all of eternity. And yet he went quietly and with great joy. How many of us bemoan a little bit of heartache in our life? True joy is being so at peace with God that we're able to rest in him no matter the cost. And that's hard to, that's hard to get. It's hard for me to say. When you've gone through hardships, it's hard to say that we should utter not a voice. It's hard to say that we should find joy in the trials of life. But because of Christ, we can. And you're going to fail. I'm going to fail. All the time. but what a beautiful truth that he will never let us go. If you have never come to faith in the Lord Jesus, I would ask you this morning to repent of your sin, to trust in Jesus to save you, to surrender your life completely and fully to him, to receive the eternal assurance that it brings, and then to serve him with gladness all the days of your life. And as we close, I want to leave you with this a quote from one of my favorite people in history, Charles Spurgeon. He says, Obedience to the will of God is the pathway to perpetual honor and everlasting joy. Do you have joy in your life because of Christ in you? If not, you need Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, Father,